How do you react when you witness a significant event? How do you respond? What questions do you ask? I think there are two important questions that we can and should ask as we are faced with or are witnesses of some significant event, be it in front of us or be it in the world that we are part of. One obvious question that we pose is, what's going on? What's actually happening here? And there the concern is to have an an accurate grasp of the events. What is, is really happening? We know that can be quite difficult. We live in an age of fake news. I guess there's always been fake news, but we hear a lot about fake news. So so even knowing what's going on is not always a simple task, but it's a, a reasonable question to pose. What's going on? But then there's another subsequent question that is perhaps even more important, and it's the question, what does this mean? What is the meaning of this event? Why is this happening? So you could think of a couple of examples. We could think of a, a very tragic example that is ever before us in the news of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. We could ask the question, what's going on? You know, and there we would be thinking about uh, what cities have been taken by the Russians, uh, what counteroffensive there's going to be, how many casualties, what resources are being employed in the battle, and facts, and establish what's going on. But then... There's a deeper question. What does this mean? Why is this happening? And I I don't have an answer to that question. But it's a question that we can also pose and at least ponder on, wrestle with. Or maybe something not so significant. I guess it depends on on, uh, your perspective. Something in London just, was it three weeks ago, the coronation. Uh, imagine an uninformed tourist in London. I'm sure tourists in London are all very informed. And if you're a tourist in London, I'm sure you're a very informed tourist. But imagine an uninformed tourist on Coronation Day, and they're looking around, and they're seeing all the pomp and circumstance and the carriages and the flags and the crowds. They might ask the question, what's going on? What's going on? Well, somebody could tell them, well, this is what's going on, and give them the facts. We could maybe also ask the question, what does this mean? Uh, and to that, I'm sure there'll be very, lots of different answers depending on where you stand. But that's another question that could be posed. What does this mean? What does it say about our country, its past, its present, its future, and so on? Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, and we've already made reference to that fact. And today, our gaze is directed to Jerusalem and to Luke's presentation of a hugely significant event that took place a couple of thousand years ago. And in his account of the events on the day of Pentecost, Luke answers the question, what's going on? He describes the events. In the part of the account that we've read, these first, what is it, 13 verses of uh, the chapter, is a description of the events. This is what happened. Uh, on that day, an answer to the question, what's going on? But in that account and in the part that we read, he also records how many in the crowd, it would seem perhaps the majority, amazed by the events they were witnessing, perplexed, amazed, posed that second question. What does this mean? Very explicitly, That question is posed. What does this mean? And it's a great question. And our objective this morning is to try and answer uh, that critical question. Now, in fairness uh, to Peter, 
uh, he himself answers the question. Uh, notice what he says as he introduces his sermon in verse 14. But Peter, uh, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Other translations uh, translate that part of the verse as, Let me explain this to you. If this is what happened. You're asking, what does it mean? Well, I'm going to explain to you what it means. But what we're going to do this morning, uh, and I don't know if it's fair to include you because I'm the one that's decided to do it this way, but just to be a little contrary, what I want to try and do is identify the meaning of the events by Luke's description of the events in verses 1 to 13. So we're not going to go on, which would be the sensible thing to do, and hear what uh, Peter tells us um, about the events and explains them, but we're going to limit ourselves to the events themselves and what clues they give us as to the meaning of the event, the meaning of that great day. What we're going to do is we're going to identify and examine three pieces of evidence that will help us answer the question posed by the inquisitive crowd. What does this mean? We're going to think about the meaning of the day, the day on which this took place. So the meaning of the day. We're then going to think about the meaning of the signs. Uh, we're given a description of signs that took place. And we want to think about the meaning of the signs. And then finally, we're going to think about the meaning of the words. The response of the crowd is to the words that they heard spoken. And so we want to think about that as well. Three um, clues that will help us understand uh, the meaning of this day, the day of Pentecost. And what we'll discover is that these three pieces of evidence identify, in turn, a harvest, the equipping of the harvesters, um, and the means employed to bring in the harvest. So each of these three clues will point to these three things that relate to the same theme of a harvest. So first of all, the harvest, the harvesters and the equipping of the harvesters and the means employed to bring in the harvest. Now, so far that may sound a little bit cryptic, but bear with me and all will, I hope, become clear. And at the end, feel free to just tell me that did not become clear. That's, that's okay. And if it did, you might want to tell me that it did become clear, but I leave that to your prerogative. So first of all, the meaning of the day. The meaning of the day. The passage begins there in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. The very fact that uh, Luke introduces his account in this way is pointing to the significance of that day. You know, this didn't just happen any day. These events happened on this day, the day of uh, Pentecost. Uh, Luke is indicating that the day in question is significant and meaningful. Now, what does Pentecost mean? Well, it's a Greek word uh, transliterated into English, Pentecostes. It means 50th or 50th day. We're familiar with Pente as five, you know, the pentathlon, that Olympic event with five disciplines, the Pentateuch, the five first, bi first five books of the Bible. Uh, well, Pentecostes means uh, 50th or 50th day. And the significance of this name is understood when we view the events of Jesus' death, resurrection, and his sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost 
in parallel with the Jewish festivals at which time these events took place. Because each of these three events took place in parallel to Jewish festivals. Now, obviously, we're going to focus in on the day of Pentecost, but we want to just identify the others to see how it fits. So Jesus' death coincided with the Passover feast. And we're familiar with that. I won't dwell on that. Jesus' resurrection coincided with the feast of first fruits. That's maybe something we're not quite so familiar with. And then Jesus' ascending of the Holy Spirit coincided with the feast of weeks. Specifically, seven weeks, which if you do the maths, comes out at about 50 days, 49, 50 days. Um, 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, 49 days after the resurrection. Now that these critical redemptive events in the mission of Jesus should have coincided with the celebration of God-appointed festivals for his people is, I think, clearly no coincidence When we think of the death of Jesus at Passover, back on that momentous day of liberation from captivity in Egypt, the shed blood of the Passover lamb painted on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites provided protection from death. And this shed blood pointed forward to the shed blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb whose death secures forgiveness and liberation and eternal life for sinners such as we are. Then Jesus rose from the grave on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. Why on that day? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15 and reading from verse 20, we read, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul presents the resurrected Jesus as a kind of harvest of life. The first fruit of a spiritual harvest of life. But as the first fruit, he is the precursor of a greater harvest of life, which leads us to Pentecost. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the festival of weeks. Notice the way that the 50 days are accounted for in the first chapter of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, and reading from verse 3, we read, uh, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during, notice the time reference, during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the 40 days of his post-resurrection appearances, and then this waiting time, I guess, about 10 days, making up the 50 uh, days. Now, the festival of weeks served to celebrate and give thanks for the ingathering of the full harvest in the festival calendar of Israel. So on this day, we are witnessing the beginning of the ingathering of the full harvest of which Jesus was the first fruit Now remember the question of the crowd and our question, what does this mean? 
The day on which these events take place reveals one aspect of the meaning of the day, namely that on this day, God is gathering in a spiritual harvest. So that's the first thing we wanted to look at, the first clue, the meaning of the day. The second clue that we want to consider is the meaning of the signs that are spoken of in the passage. And there are two signs identified by Luke. First of all, a mighty rushing wind. We see that in verse uh, 2. And then uh, in the following verse, divided tongues as of fire. So wind and fire. What do these signs mean? Well, both signs or symbols, wind and fire, represent God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is identified by the Hebrew word ruach, meaning wind or breath. We have that at the very beginning of the Bible in the first chapter of Genesis. And Jesus, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, employs this same symbol to identify the Spirit of God in his conversation with Nicodemus. You remember the occasion there in recorded for us in John chapter 3, and Jesus spoke in, in this way, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so the wind representing uh, the Spirit of God. As for fire, well, fire often served to represent God's light-giving and purifying presence. We can think of the, the pillar of fire by night that accompanied the Israelites during the Exodus. Or we remember how at the dedication of Solomon's temple, fire fell from heaven and the glory of God filled the temple. These signs or symbols not only represent something that God is doing, they represent God himself. They also represent something God is doing, but it's more than just that. They represent God. God is coming down from heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? Well, Luke tells us all of them, that is the disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with God. The wind or breath of God took up residence in their lives, and the fire of God entered their very beings to bring life and light and purity. Now, what has this got to do with the harvest that the day speaks of? We've noticed already how the day speaks of the harvest. What about these signs? How do they tie in with the harvest? Well, they tie in because God is equipping and enabling the harvesters. There's a harvest, but there needs to be harvesters to bring in the harvest. And so these signs speak of how God is equipping the harvesters, his own people, by his own enabling presence amongst them and within them. Notice how uh, Luke is at pains to, to stress that all of those gathered were so equipped and so enabled, so filled with the Spirit all together, each one of them. There's a deliberate intent on the part of uh, Luke to make clear that all of the believers were so equipped so that they might serve as harvesters of this great harvest that was to be uh, brought in. Indeed, Luke uses this very language of enabling in verse 4. We read, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or as the Spirit enabled them. And so these believers are being enabled 
to participate in gathering in uh, the harvest. And so you remember the question that we've posed and that we're trying to answer. What does this mean? Well, the signs point to this meaning that God's people are being indwelt by God in order that they might be equipped, enabled, and empowered to gather in, to be involved in gathering in the promised harvest of which Jesus is the first fruit. So we have a harvest, and we have harvesters, but that leads us on to the meaning of the words. The third clue in Luke's description of the events, but that gives us a clue as to the meaning of the events. Now, the disciples, or let's call them the harvesters, we read, were enabled to speak words. That's what they were enabled to do, to speak words. And we can say two things about the words that they spoke. First of all, the language in which they spoke them, but then also the truths that the words declared. If we think first of the language in which the words were spoken. Well, the disciples are said to speak in other tongues. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The following verse, and indeed the passage as a whole, makes it very clear that these other tongues were the native languages of the pilgrims gathered from across the world in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit granted the disciples the supernatural ability to speak in languages they did not know, that they had not learned. And so they speak in other tongues, in other languages. Why? Well, I think the meaning is clear enough. By granting this gift, God is is vividly confirming that the time has come for the Gentiles to be brought into the family of God, men and women from every tribe and nation and language. And and the gift of languages also points to the pivotal place occupied by Pentecost in the big story of redemption and God's purposes for the nation. You remember how at Babel, man's rebellion against God provoked God's just judgment that found expression in the confusion of tongues and the consequent division of and hostility between the nations of the world. Now, at Pentecost, we witness a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. Now, there's something very interesting here that we don't have time to go into, but I find it fascinating how that reversal didn't bring everything back to where it was with one language. But God rescues that the beauty of many languages being kept and yet at the same time reversing the curse of Babel. What what an amazing God we have that he he, he saw fit to reverse the curse in that rather curious way. But we won't delve more into that right now. But at Pentecost, not only are we we brought to look back to Babel and how God now is, is reversing that curse, but at Pentecost, we also find a foretaste of what is to come, a foretaste of heaven. A foretaste of heaven as it is wonderfully and and beautifully described in the vision of John in Revelation chapter 7. And let's just read a couple of verses there, if for no other reason that it's, there are beautiful verses to read. And and of course, they tie in with what we're considering. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we read as follows. And John is describing what he sees. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I wonder what language they're speaking. Are they speaking a multiplicity of languages, but we can all understand them? I don't know. But Pentecost points forward, too, to that great day when the peoples of the world will be gathered worshiping uh, the Redeemer. So the languages in which the words were spoken uh, gives us an insight into the meaning of the events, but also, of course, of even greater significance, the truths of the words declared. In the context of this picture of a harvest, what purpose do the words serve? Well, I think we can see it in this way, that the words are the sickle, or if we were to modernize it, that the combine harvester, the tool employed to gather in the harvest. You see, it's not of much help to a harvester uh, to, without any tools to do his job. He needs tools. He needs equipment. And so the disciples, as the harvesters, they also, we also need tools. And the words are the tools that God gives us to, to do our job of gathering in uh, the harvest. This is what the harvesters have. They have a word from God, a word about Jesus, words that declare the wonders of God. Is that not what the, 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 the bystanders or the, the pilgrims uh, declare? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God or the wonders of God. This is the meaning of the words that are being shared and declared and pronounced on this great day. And as the people hear these words, what happens? Well, the prophet Joel, referenced extensively by Peter in the sermon that follows, anticipates the impact of these words on those who hear them when he declares, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As they hear of the wonders of God, of the great works of God, of who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, so they respond in faith and put their trust in him and are saved. The meaning of the day speaks of the harvest. The meaning of the signs, it speaks of the harvesters being equipped. The meaning of the words, it speaks all points to the, the tools that we are given to do the job of harvesting. But as we draw these threads together, let's develop a little bit the question, what does this mean, and bring it to today. What does this mean for us today? In his gospel, Luke, in the verse that we read just before our reading from Acts, Luke records the promise of Jesus to clothe his disciples with power from on high. And the word translated power in the Greek or is the Greek word dunamis, and many preachers are quick to tellingly highlight that the English word dynamite is derived from this Greek word. I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, it's not particularly novel to, to identify that. But in the context of Pentecost, there's another English word derived from dunamis that fits perhaps more tellingly. It's the word dynamo. A dynamo is a continual source of power for a continuing mission. And I guess we can see how both words, dynamite and dynamo, together capture the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at 
Pentecost, a dramatic event, a very visible event, but also his continuing and powerful enabling of his people for mission. Pentecost was dynamite. It was dynamite. It was dramatic. It caused a huge reaction in all who witnessed it. But the Holy Spirit is our continuing dynamo, even in the absence often of great explosive drama. Now, if the Lord wants to give us great explosive drama, bring it on. But even in the absence of that drama, the Spirit is working quietly and powerfully, enabling his people to do the work of gathering in the harvest. The Holy Spirit came down and clothed and filled and enabled the disciples on the day of Pentecost. But the same Spirit as our living dynamo continues to clothe and to fill and enable his people. And that would be you and me. Let's just think about the three elements of the harvest that we have identified that are represented or present at Pentecost and think of their significance for us today. What about the harvest? Well, the harvest is still being gathered in. God still has many people uh, in this city to gather in. And even today in London, perhaps amongst us here this morning, or where the word of God is being declared in multiple locations, God will gently gather in one or two or more into his family and kingdom. There is a harvest being brought in today, in this place, in this city. And the harvesters are still being equipped. We are still being equipped. As believers, as congregations, we are in as much need of being clothed with power by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill God's mission as those 120 disciples huddled in the upper room 2,000 years ago. And there is here a a dynamic spiritual tension that we have no need to try and resolve. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but we need to be continuously filled by that same Spirit. We remember the words of Paul as he wrote to the believers in Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit. These were men and women who were indwelt by the Spirit, but there is this uh, injunction, this this encouragement, uh, this motivation Be filled with the Spirit. And so we pray, come, Holy Spirit, and clothe us in Pentecostal power. The harvest, the harvesters, and then the tool employed to bring in the harvest is still the spoken word. You need to speak. And some say, I'm not very good at speaking. That's not my thing. And we recognize different personalities and giftings, but we need to speak. We need to speak to the nations. And God, in his gracious providence, has brought the nations to your doorstep as those who live in this uh, great city. What a privilege. When I lived in London 30-odd years ago, one of the things I enjoyed doing as I was traveling in the tube is to sit in the carriage and try and identify as many languages as I could. Now, I'm no polyglot, so Some of them I could identify, some I couldn't. So it was a case of identifying those I could and then just adding up the ones I couldn't. I could usually distinguish that, you know, they were different. And that was a little game I played as I made my weedy way back home from work and tried to, you know, somehow make the time pass. 
But isn't that a, 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 an amazing thing? What an amazing privilege that you go onto the tube and in one cottage, the nations of the world are represented. They're represented here this morning. But in a cottage on the tube, there are the nations of the world. And you need to declare the wonders of God to those around you. As we kind of draw things to a close, let me just tell you a wee story. It's not a story, it's more an anecdote of something that happened to me on the train down yesterday from Edinburgh. So I got on the train, I'm heading down, and I was kind of like having a little look at my notes. And so the sermon was kind of in my mind. And in front of me, there were two guys who were coming into London, I discovered, because they were speaking a lot. And as the beers were, were going down, the, the volume went up. It was all very pleasant. It wasn't, uh, uh, it was fine. Uh, but I learned a lot about them, especially one in particular. Now, they were Carlisle United fans. Now, I don't know how au fait you are with um, British football, but today is the, champ, the, the playoff for the second division to determine who goes up to the first division. It's between Carlisle and Stockport. You'd have to be pretty hardcore football supporter to know that. But yesterday, there was a bigger match. Well, maybe Carlisle United supporters would, would disagree, but it was the... A championship playoff between Luton and Coventry, which Luton won on penalties. All very exciting. And that seemed to be, you know, the, the most expensive match in world football because of the prize gained by gaining promotion to the premiership. So these two guys from Carlisle were coming down for both games. Somehow they managed to get hospitality tickets. I know a lot about this because I was overhearing a lot of their conversation. Uh, they, they were coming down for the, for the championship playoff at Wembley. And then they were going to stay on today for the Carlisle game. Now, one of these guys, he was 35. I even know how old he is. Um, I also know that he claims to appear to be 20, but he doesn't. He looks 35. But anyway, um, what, what, what struck me, and it was kind of almost cute in a way, that this 35-year-old, I'm sure a dozen times he said, I'm buzzing. I'm so buzzing, he phoned his dad. He's just, I'm buzzing. I'm going to the championship playoff. We've got hospitality tickets. I'm just buzzing. There'll be 90,000 people there. I don't know why I put a Scottish accent, because he's from Carlisle. But anyway, kind of, I'm buzzing almost has to be in a Scottish accent. But, um, and then he phoned his pals, and then he was speaking to his, his, his pal on the train. He spoke to other passengers. I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing. He just had to tell people this good news that he was going to this amazing match, and he was going to get this amazing food, and it was a free bar, and, and all the rest of it. You can just imagine. I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing. As you, you probably know where I'm going here, but I was just sitting back, and I was thinking, am I buzzing to tell people about Jesus? Am I buzzing to, to let people know about the wonders of God? Like, here's a guy who's going to a football match, and he's buzzing. He's so excited. It's like childlike, his enthusiasm. And am I just a little bit old and cynical and say, oh, yeah, it's important, and yeah, it's something I should do, but, well, are we buzzing to tell people about Jesus, to declare the, the wonders of God that the harvest would be gathered in? May God, by his Spirit, clothe us and enable us that we would be buzzing this week to declare the wonders of God. What better way to celebrate Pentecost than for us, the harvesters, to declare the wonders of God and the good news concerning Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we do indeed have good news to tell. Good news for us. We celebrate the good news because of all that it means for us as your people. 
We celebrate your great salvation. We celebrate all that Jesus has done for us and continues to do for us. We celebrate the great privilege of being sinners, but forgiven sinners, uh, those who have been brought into the family of God. And we pray that we would indeed recognize our privilege and responsibility to serve as your harvesters. We thank you that you do not leave us alone in this task. You accompany us and you enable us and you equip and you empower us and you give us the tools, uh, the words of good news to declare, to tell the wonders of God to all who would hear. And as we tell them, we pray that the same spirit who enables us would prepare the heater to receive and to respond. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.